Dear everybody, it's been months since I've written one of these letters. And in that time, the reality of my relative isolation, life and teaching online, the national political chaos, and mass sickness and death has become the hard, enervating norm. A semester has come and gone and an election along with the slowest, most toxic grind to its certification. And all the while, so much death. This week, the official count will reach 400,000 deaths nationally, though this number is no doubt low. Now the model of Trump's cruelty and refusal of facts has taken on a whole new significance in this immediate run-up to Biden's inauguration. When I wrote to you the first time back in March, it was from a New York City that was acutely suffering from this pandemic. And the urgency I felt was in relation to your safety and my need to express some of the pressure I felt building in my body as I figured out how to understand what I was living through. Reading through those letters now raises tears in my eyes. Perhaps in the future, I'll write to you more specifically about how much the city has changed over the past nine months. How many people have left to live elsewhere? How many beloved places have closed and familiar streets become shadowy? Right now, I am thinking of the many people I know who have lost family members, young friends, neighbors, colleagues, how many brilliant and priceless older people have died prematurely. But you are experiencing this where you are. The enormity of the devastation of this mishandled pandemic has since been wreaked on the whole country. I still study the maps every couple of days and check your counties and the city's numbers and positivity rates. But my mind, so given to busy and complex observation and analysis, has mostly submitted to the fact that, as in many things, this country has forced and chosen the way of maximum pain. Like so many people I do and do not know, I got COVID-19 in an untraceable way. And given certain symptoms, it's possible that I was infected through my eyes. I have carefully worn my mask and washed my hands, but my desire for life has led me to enter crowded grocery stores and subway trains. I am in the third week of symptoms, which for me has meant a lower intensity of the kicked in the back feeling that started things off, occasional rattling cough, an ache in my lungs, really random seeming congestion, some mental fog and general fatigue, headaches between my sore eyes, and most recently, a double eye infection. Like many people, I lost my senses of smell and taste about a week in, and along with them, my appetite, none of which has returned completely. I was so lucky to be quarantined with my girlfriend as we very doggedly reminded and coaxed each other to eat. We were, without appetite, unfeeling of our own hungers, and each noticed the other's stomach growling before we felt our own. 
Amy's symptoms, though mirroring mine a bit, but a couple days behind, seem a bit more straightforward, though they also linger. Having had, still having, progressing through this illness, like maybe all experiences, has shifted and is shifting my perspective on this time. This illness is extremely strange and strikingly depressing. The confusion, the unpredictable symptoms, the fear. I've been saying to myself that the past nine months trained me to stay still for this. But even the purposeful temporary intensification of this isolation was demoralizing. More intimately, not being able to smell my own body or take in the smells around me has served me with a new lesson on my own experience of my body's variable dimensions. It is easy to say that something sucks, but harder to communicate the feeling of the disappearance of nuanced perception. Feeling bad versus physically suspecting that you no longer exist because you can no longer smell yourself. Or feeling ghosty or flattened without access to all this molecular evidence inside and out through smell. And then as much as I tried to practice letting myself really be ill and really rest and seek out the right responses to my body's needs, the mere fact of the blunting and slowing of my mental function meant impatience with the angle of the light, frustration with any event beyond my control, odd temporary rages. These rages too could have been, could be a symptom, but more certainly I know it's fear. My mind has always been so key to my protection and the depth of meaning in my life that I register any variation in its speed and acuity as loss. There is an ableism here that I promised to myself to spend the unfolding year getting into. But I name it here thinking of the millions of people infected and the visible and invisible vulnerabilities this brutal country is designed to crush or take advantage of. I keep thinking about how things do not have to be this way. If our values demanded a world organized to provide care rather than to reap profit and death, I believe we would find ourselves very differently right now. Until I die, I will insist, no organized body of people I want to live among will confuse itself for a business. But that the federal government, so committed to expenditures that favor corporate and military lobbies, can imagine nothing but the most limited and superficial forms of support to people, schools, and small businesses, has meant that people, especially the most vulnerable, have been busy suffering from and compensating for the lack of care in being thrown back into work or thrown into debt to maintain support for their employees and businesses. These feelings and thoughts are not exciting, but they feel necessary, a lowering into the reality of a mortal grief that is everywhere. 
As I've said to friends, I can feel the genius of this virus in the relationship between this strange combination of symptoms. I can feel were one symptom to be intensified, how urgently bad things could have become. The virus seems so wise about the vulnerabilities in systems. But as I've said to friends, I can feel my immune system working. Decades of privileged access to medical care and knowledge, and also luck. At the end of each day, I've said silently to myself, this could be going, could have gone very differently and worse. And I measure the depth of my breath. I have lived through this year, able to work from home to produce a stable income and shelter, and have survived this period of illness so well cared for with food and herbs and loving conversation from generous friends near and far. But the precipice for anyone who isn't wealthy in this country is nightmarishly near, and that includes me. To say nothing of the millions of people who have suffered and struggled to live or died from this illness inside the real nightmare of existential and economic precarity and disempowerment. I am grateful for my life and for the time I've been granted so that the hardest reckonings have been able to teach me that things live and die in me and even in dying remain. I am still learning about the faith involved in this, what love does with what ends. I am so grateful that Uncle Randy beat this illness too, so surrounded by love and wish him all kinds of good progress in his recovery. I am grateful for the amaryllis my grandma Nancy sent me in December, which blossomed at the height of my illness. And for my new kitten, Vanna, who can be an aloof Virgo with me, but who unreservedly loves madness. I hope you're keeping safe. Love, Sarah.